church family, uh, what a joy it is to worship with you this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Philippians uh, chapter 2. And if you will remember, we're in the third week of a four-week series, and we're walking through uh, what scholars just deem the, the four major Christological passages in the New Testament. And just as a reminder, the reason why we're doing that is uh, it's, it's very healthy for us to sort of pause for a moment coming out of a political cycle where our eyes have been fixated on current events and we get controlled and consumed by that. And so the Lord just in his goodness and mercy just sort of led us down this path. And so we're in Philippians uh, 2 today, which is known from uh, in the scholarly world as just the Christ hymn. Now, verses 5 through 11, we're going to look at, these were probably, uh, it was some sort of poetry. It was, a, it was probably a song that was sung in the life of the early church. And Paul takes it and he begins to weave in this argument that really begins to contend for the humility of God's people. Now, before we begin to look at the text, um, oftentimes in relationships, uh, or if we're a boss or a supervisor or a spouse or we're in a relationship, Sometimes you come and you, you have good news and you have bad news that you've got to share. Now, when someone comes to you and says, I have good news and bad news, which do you want to hear first? Most of us probably would contend that we want to hear the bad news first, then followed by the good news. And the reason why we often do that is because, well, we hope that, that however bad the bad news is, that the good news sort of sheds some light on it and we can sort of end on a, on a sort of positive note. Now, what Paul does in chapter two of Philippians, he, he begins by talking about some good news. But one of the things that we've got to understand to really understand verses one through about four, we've got to back up just real briefly and look at the end of chapter one. Now, I'm not going to look at it on the screen. I'll just paraphrase what happens on the last three or four verses of chapter one. Paul is in jail. He's writing to the church. And he goes through this dialogue and he, he gets to about verse 27 of chapter one. And he tells the church this, live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Live it in a way that's worthy of Jesus. And then he goes on to say after that, he, he makes this connector to the idea of living your life in a, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on and he says something that's just completely outrageous, that's terrible news. He says, oh yeah, by the way, if you're going to live in a life worthy of the gospel, you're going to suffer. You're going to partake of the sufferings of Jesus. To be worthy of the gospel, you're going to endure sufferings as his people. That's the bad news. Now, that's not a popular message that's taught uh, by most televangelists on Sunday mornings, my, myself included, since I've become a televangelist the past year because of COVID, right? One thing I never thought uh, I, I would do within my lifetime. But the idea that you to live, you're to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and to connect that with your suffering, meaning as long as you're suffering in some ways, you're living worthy of the gospel, as long as you're suffering in, in the right ways and with the right means. So we pick up in chapter two, verse one, where he goes on and he says, now here's the good news. Hear this church. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
One of the reasons why I love the Apostle Paul is he has these moments where he'll harshly rebuke the church, but then he's got these other moments where he comes alongside them in sort of a, a tenderness and a, and a very compassionate spirit. And one of the reasons why he starts chapter two with this is likely because of what he just said prior to that, but what he's wanting the church to understand in this moment, he's trying to rally their emotions and how they feel and how they think. And he's balancing the idea that that the word of God informs how we feel about things. Now, if you're a thinker, this morning, and you sort of gravitate towards processing things and, and you want to think them or you internalize them, the, 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 the bad part about that is that you will tend to be very negative towards your emotions and how you feel, and you'll sort of try to stifle them up to the side. If you're an overly emotional person, a lot of times you're driven by your emotions and you need to let truth come in and inform how it is that you're thinking and processing things. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them of of the truth of his word. And he wants that truth to then come in and inform the feelings and the understanding of the individual. Because hear this, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of many of you who are struggling with anxiety and and maybe you're a little depressed or you're a whole lot depressed or, or you're very anxious, listen to me, God cares about how you feel. He cares And you want to know the reason why I know that he cares? Because God is the one that gave you your feelings. God cares about how we think as well, but he wants us to to, to allow the truth of God's word to inform how we feel and, and let that be the thing that determines and dictates what our emotions do at times. I've heard well-meaning preachers over the years just completely minimize the emotional side of, of following Christ and walking with God. And they minimize uh, the humanity of Jesus and Him identifying with us as, as if emotions and feelings are, are negative things. Friends, they're, they're not. The problem just comes when we divorce the truth from the things and the way in which we feel. And they go together. And so as Paul writes to the church and he says that there's any encouragement in Christ, I want you to notice that little phrase that he uses at the end. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, not in your social media likes, not in your Instagram follows or the latest TikTok reel that that you rolled out of there, not not in anything that you would read or study, not in uh, what you're watching, not in your activities that you're doing. No, he says, if there's any encouragement in Jesus, if you're walking with him and you know him and you're known by God, then let that be the source of your encouragement. Let that be the the, the thing that directs and guides you if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love. He's like, church, listen, I want you to remember that you are loved by God. We know that you love him as you sing and you adore him, but, but some of us right now, just in really difficult times, you just need to be reminded of that. God loves you, he cares for you. He knows where you're at. He knows your conflict and he knows your situations. He knows your mental state and he knows your physical state and he cares deeply about you. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, knowing we are known and can know God, any participation in the spirit of God. What that means is, is that when we receive Christ and when we trust him, God gives us the promise of his presence in our life. We get the Holy Spirit as as a gift, as the guarantee to our salvation. 
And, and we can walk in the spirit of God or we can walk in the flesh and, and we can be led by, by carnal things and, and temporary things or we can come alongside one another and we can sing and we can worship in song but worship as we listen to a sermon in spirit. And one of the ways that we know that we're worshiping in spirit is when God begins to reveal truth into our hearts and into our minds about ways in which we either need to change or he begins to reiterate some things about himself and his character and his nature and his goodness to us. That's the spirit of God reminding us of those things. And so Paul says, any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from, from love, knowing you're loved, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Affection towards one another in, in the cause of Christ and, and affection and sympathy towards the church as a whole and just being sympathetic to the things of God and being sensitive to the things of God as God is speaking. If there's any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, any affection, then Paul says this, as, as a loving, kind, pastoral evangelist, as he writes from Joe, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's saying you want a, a rallying cry, you, you walk in, in, in those, those four ways. You see, the church in Philippi was, was known as, as a joyful church, but yet, though they were joyful, they were a church that experienced conflict. Relationally, there, there were issues. They needed to be reminded that, that the goal of this life is not to alleviate your suffering. In fact, Paul writes from jail as he suffers for the sake of the gospel. And they begin to question Paul a little bit, like, why are you getting arrested so many times? Like, maybe something's wrong with, with you and, and, and what you're saying and what you're preaching. And Paul's saying, no, listen, um, if there's any encouragement as you uh, wrestle with difficult issues in, in your relationships, remember these things. Be encouraged. Remember that God loves you. Participate in the Spirit of God. Show affection and sympathy towards one another. Complete my joy and be of the same mind. Have the same love, being in full accord and one mind. And then he says something that I, I see happen oftentimes in Christians and well-meaning Christians, sometimes mature Christians. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You know, competition's a good thing. It's healthy at times to, to be competitive. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but competition, if you don't, if you don't check it every once in a while, it can become a, a scorecard relationally. And what I mean by that is in our marriages and, and in our friendships, that I'm friends with you on the terms that uh, you do certain things for me and then I'll do certain things for you. And then we're gonna walk together alongside each other, but we're gonna be checking and, and have this sort of rivalry in a way that my relationship is dependent upon what you do for me, not rather what I end up doing for you. And we become rivals. We become conceited and we become sort of puffed up in our, in our relationships. Years ago, I had a couple that came to me for marriage counseling and about the third or fourth session, we began to sort of unravel some of the key issues in the marriage. And then one spouse made this proclamation. They said, uh, they, they don't deserve my, my kindness and all the things that I do. They're so undeserving and unappreciative. And as they said this, my eyes sort of went up and I, and I paused and I, I let that sort of awkwardness just sort of rest out there in the middle of it. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. My friend, do, do, do you realize that is precisely the point that they don't deserve 
your kindness, that they don't deserve your generosity, they don't deserve your mercy, that I'm not deserving of that kindness and and that mercy and and that compassion. That's precisely the point of, of grace, is it not? The unmerited favor of God, that I can be kind to very harsh and severe people. That in humility, I can seek their welfare over me trying to be right or or even proving a point. I wish I would have learned this sooner in ministry because I feel like I spent the first couple of years just being in ministry trying to prove that I was right about things. And the older I got, the more I began to realize that really the goal is this understanding that, that I have no rival, that I have uh, uh, no, no enemies, if you will, that my enemy is against not flesh and blood, but it's against other things that I can't see. And, and the goal is not always to be right or to prove a point. Yes, we speak for truth and we contend for it, but, but we also need to understand that, that we're out here contending for the faith once and for all. That we have a mission that, that we see people far from God come to know Christ. And, and it's not about being heard or being right or even being understood in every moment, but rather the heart of the person that we're going after, that we allow God and the Spirit of God to participate in the Spirit and to change them. Do nothing from this rivalry. Do nothing from this conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The $100 question this morning is, well, what does that mean to, to count others as more significant than yourself? How, how to be humble. You ever met a guy that bragged about how humble he was? I'm a pretty humble guy. I just want to let you know. Very humble. Johnny Derwin, very humble guy. Tells me that all the time, right? You just, you have no idea how, how much humility I have in my life, right? You, I, I've met people that really said that and really argued for that. One, one author said it this way, if, when you, the moment you identify humility, And the moment you call out humility in your own life, it puts on its shoes and it walks out the door and it's gone. Like the moment you say, I've arrived in this humble state of seeking the welfare of other people to the neglect of my own is the moment you've lost the humility altogether. I would contend to you this morning that humility is less about arriving somewhere and rather it's about this position that we sort of come in and out of as we navigate life, walking in humility, clothed in humility. There's a couple of ways that I'll show you this towards the end, but I wanna keep moving through the text. And he says, look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse five, he says this, this is where the hymn sort of picks up and he begins to talk about Jesus in the perspective of the conflict that exists within the church. And he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, this mindset, this mentality that exists, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Years ago, scholars began to try to take away and they began to minimize or attempt to minimize the deity of Jesus. And they argued from Philippians 2, verse 7, that this idea of him emptying himself meant that he, he divested himself of his divine nature. So all the attributes, the holiness, the perfection, uh, the, the kindness, the, like he, he walked away from, from those divine things and he ceased to be those so that he could become something else, which was God in, incarnate, if you will, but absent the, the divine nature. 
And oftentimes the scholars that would argue this and would contend for this idea were, were usually folks that had an agenda that really meant to sort of seek to undermine the authority of Scripture and, and sort of undermine uh, that, that this was God's Word, but rather it was just a history book full of some good moral principles that we should sort of reason through, but, but it wasn't the Word of God as, as given by God. And they developed what's known as the kenosis theory, and it comes from that word nothing, and, and it just is the Greek word kenosis, and meaning that, that Jesus ceased to be God when he came into the earth. Now, we would say that, that sounds like nonsense to us, but a lot of people believe that. Even other religions outside of evangelical churches would hold to that idea that God changes form, if you will, and he becomes something new. And, and what scholars call that is modalism, like you're evolving in modes down the road. And there's some famous TV preachers out there that, that hold to this. And, and it's a heretical, it's very unorthodox. It's not the faith that we would, would hold. So what do we do with that phrase that he emptied himself and he made himself nothing? Well, what we learn when we study God's word is this, that the context is what teaches us what the words mean. And so rather than taking a word and then jumping outside of scripture and even the context of it and trying to make this abstract or, or obtuse argument about something that nobody's really talking about, but the agenda exists, we go to the context of the scripture. And so what we learn is as soon as he said this, he goes on and he says, he made himself nothing and he took the form of a what? A servant. Now in the Greek, it, it just literally reads slave. He became a bond servant which means he, he had nothing, he owned nothing, he demonstrated no authority in those ways. And so when the Bible says, talking about Jesus, he made himself nothing, it doesn't mean that he ceased being who he was and subtracted those things, but rather he took something rather than let something go. And in this case, what he takes is the form of a servant. Think about this. The name above every name, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega takes the form of a doulos, a bondservant being born in the likeness of men. Where before this was happening, here he was in the throne room of God being worshiped, unhindered, uh, uh, unbroken, no, no sin exists. There he is in all of his glory. The angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he walks away from that temporarily to take the form of a servant to walk with you and I. Verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself. So much so that he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. He was obedient to the point of death, suffering for the sake of his glory to the point of death on a shameful cross. I think oftentimes we, we miss that. And I was struck by that this week, this idea of him coming and not just, not just being put to death uh, rather quickly, but, but rather in the most shameful way possible at the time is how he died. The most humiliating, the, the most agonizing, just the most awful way that anyone could perish and die, he, he dies obedient unto death, unto the cross. Verse nine, he says, well, therefore, because of this obedience, God has highly exalted him and he's bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, 
So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because of his obedience, God elevates him and gives him the name above every other name. If we know our Old Testament a little bit, we, we know that God is described in a variety of ways throughout the Scripture. We see him uh, described as, as the Alpha and the Omega at times. We, we see he's the beginning and the end. He, we see that he's the good shepherd. He's called the great shepherd. Uh, he's called the chief shepherd in other instances. He's called the, the bread of life. He's called the, the word of life. All these names and descriptors, he's the ancient of days. Like he's all these different things. And, and, and yet we get to this point in Philippians and it says that he's now given not just an ordinary name, not a name that has been given to someone else, but rather he's been given the name Jesus Christ is Lord, the Kyrios. He is Lord of all things, the divine name of God, Yahweh, that's only used to symbolize the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. Now we get to call upon this God. The author and, and sustainer, the creator, that all things were made through him and by him and for him and all things have their end found in him. This God, we get to have a relationship with that God who controls and reigns every single thing, every breath that we breathe, everything that we see, every thought that we have. He is Lord of all those things. He's the Lord of them. Because one day, the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Notice what it says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So here's sort of the sad part of this triumphant verse is the idea that one day, whether in this life or the next, every single knee is going to bow to the Lordship of Jesus. Whether they receive him and trust him by faith as they're living and breathing, it doesn't matter. Their knees will either bow voluntarily or they will be forced to bow in recognition of who he is and his greatness. And that doesn't mean that once they accept that in the afterlife, that they're somehow redeemed back to heaven. No, at that point, it's too late and it's over. And so one day, your knee's going to bow, whether you like it or not, whether you submit or not. If the word of God is true and accurate, which it is, and it never returns back to us, one day, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess. Friends, can I... Can I just say this to you? This week I've been praying um, for our church and specifically I've been praying for in two different ways. One, that um, obviously God, like every week, would, we would understand the idea that we're sent from this place on mission by God. And, and our mission here at the church is to see people far from God come to know him. So one of my prayers this week has been this, that God would put at least one person in your pathway at the gas station, at the barbershop, at the restaurant, at the grocery store. Maybe it's somebody in your home or it's in your sorority or your fraternity house or wherever it is you go and wherever your circle is, that God would put one person in your path that does not know Jesus and you would focus not on trying to go through a plan of salvation with them, but rather just focus for a moment on your testimony and how God saved you and just tell them your testimony. And just say, look at what God did in my life and, and God saved me and, and I'm different. And the same God that saved me in the same way, he can save you too. 
But you don't have to have a track for spiritual laws. You don't have to be bridged. None of those things. The Bible just says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's it. Repent and believe. And we overthink it and we go, well, I've not been trained in evangelism, friend. Part of our evangelistic efforts, just tell your story to people. Tell your story to people. And make sure you include God did these things, not you, and you didn't save yourself, but give your testimony. And then say, this same God that saved me, he could save you too. Why would you not let him? And make them answer that question. Just one person, God. My second prayer has been this this week. One of the shifts that that I want to see in our church long-term, and our elders want to see this, is that we want to see long-term, God begin to call out people in this church, not just students, not just college students, not just seminary students. I'm talking the 70 and 80-year-olds and the 50 and 60-year-olds and the 20s and 30s and everybody in between, that maybe God would call some of you to leave, listen to this, leave Travis, leave us and leave the city of Fort Worth even to either A, go go start a church that we can help or maybe God would call some of you to the uttermost parts of the world, to the vast, hard, unreached, difficult places where no one has heard of the name of Jesus. That God would call you, why not? God would send you, why would he not? I've watched IMB commissioning services for years now. And one of the things that, that, I, that I find over and over and over again, that's almost shocking to me, is how many times God calls people in their 50s and 60s to go. We think it's just the young, but let me tell you something. God is doing something in all age groups and we never graduate out of going and telling and doing those things. But maybe you're young and you're, you're a college student. Maybe, maybe the challenge for you to, to, to come out and, and to go is just simply this, that you would, you would put off your, your plans, your, your five-year plan or your eight-year plan or, or whatever that is, and, and you would allow God to send you and say, here I am, Lord, just send me. I want to go where, where you want me to go because I want your, your throne to, to be known and I want, I want to make much of your son, Jesus, and I want to talk about him with people that have, that have never heard him so, so that one day every tribe, nation, and tongue will gather around the throne room and the people that you share and talk to with and the people that you, you shared your testimony with and you called them to salvation and called them to repentance, they're there with us because of your faithfulness in this life. And oftentimes the difficulty in moving down that path and that trajectory is I think sometimes our tendency is we value this world far too much. And we live like this is our home. But friend, my brothers and sisters, it's not. We're not supposed to be living for this world. We're supposed to be living for the one that has come because God has highly exalted his name, his name, Jesus, so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and that they would confess. And the question is, how do I get to that place in my life, especially with a sermon wrapped up in humility? All of this is pointing to being humble because Christ is humble, stopping the strife in the life of the church, understanding that God is sending us out. And, and, and as a people, we, we go and we do those things. 
But how do you know if you're, if you're practicing, as said earlier, not just you've arrived at humility, but you're a person who, who genuinely uh, is not pretentious and has a false sense of humility, but genuinely walks humbly before your God and before his people. There's just three quick things. Good Baptist sermon, these are not parallel. There's not alliteration, but there's just three things that I was wrestling with this week about humble people that I know. Number one is this. Humble people know how to create interest in others. People that display humility in their life, they're more concerned and and more interested in asking you questions rather than you trying to tell them things. A a humble person is someone who who will sit down with you uh, over coffee or or at lunch or at breakfast and and they're just trying to get to know you. They wanna know what makes you tick. Why why are you this way? What are you passionate about? What are some of your interests? Why do you think you you wrestle with things in that way and in in that regards? And and they're, they're not really conversationalists. They just know how to ask questions to get people to talk. And I'm not saying there's a goal in those things, but humble people, they know how to create interest in other people. And they don't turn everything back. Listen to this. They don't turn things back to their own experience. Listen to me very carefully. Oftentimes, very prideful people, when you share a story or you talk, and, and sometimes the motive is good. They're trying to create a, a place of, of, of commonality and, and maybe even empathy and be able to display that. And so you'll say something, oh yeah, well, I struggled with that too. And when I was 15 years old, I wrestled with this and then my mom was doing this and you flip everything back. Oh, you went, on, you went to Colorado this summer? Oh, that's great. I went to Alaska a couple of years ago. Oh, you've traveled to Mexico? Bro, you ain't lived until you've been to Zambia or you've been to Thailand or you've been to China. Let me just tell you about those things. And there's this one-up like gamesmanship, you know, that sort of takes place. Oh, you got a new car? You see my car? And it's this back and forth where we begin to sort of bring things back. That's not the posture of, of a humble person. Humble people know how to create interest in others. Number two is humble people resist the need to always be right. You know, I had to learn that the, the hard way. I, I, uh, my mom used to say that I could argue with a brick wall and I would still win. I'm stubborn. I'm a, I'm a fairly logical guy. At least I like to think that I'll process things as logically as can. And so, so when, I, when I arrive at a decision or get to a conclusion, uh, I've usually thought through it pretty well. And so if somebody comes at me in a different way with a different perspective, I'm like, no, listen, uh, I'm gonna tell you why you're wrong and, and, and I'm right. And I'm gonna go through all the reasons that I arrived here so that I can be right in, in your eyes. And what you learn pretty quick in in life in general, just building relationships, that's not a very great way to one, build build a team or number two, the right way to build relationships with people. Humble people are are people who resist the need to to always be right. And, and, And in the always needing to be right, they're aware of when they get overly defensive in difficult situations. They're aware of this. Meaning they don't, they feel the need to defend everything and to come back. You shoot your bullet, I'll shoot my bullet. There's that rivalry and that, that conceit that sort of goes back and forth because I want to be heard and understood. And me being heard and understood is more important than whatever it is that you're feeling or whatever it is that you want to share. Humble people resist the need to always be right. Number three, humble people see their failures and their successes through the lens of Scripture. Years ago, I, when I first became a senior pastor in South Dallas, my first two years there were incredibly difficult years. 
There was a moment there where um, I remember I was struggling and I'd gone home and Haley and I were having this conversation and, you know, she just in a loving way, uh, she said it much more lovingly than this, but this is what I heard. Like, you need to like either get with it or let's get off, like pick, like, let's go, enough of this, you know? She was much kinder than that. That's me paraphrasing her. And, and all these things kept happening and, and some were my fault and I needed to acknowledge it and, and, and some weren't my fault and I, I needed the freedom of that. And I sat down one day with uh, one of our elders, a guy named Larry Murphy, who I, is just like a father to me even today. And here's what Larry kept saying to me uh, over just this difficult season in my life. He said, he goes, man, I don't, I don't know why this stuff's going on. He says, but, but the Lord must be preparing you for something great. The Lord must be preparing our church for something great. Over and over and over, he would say that. And what that helped me understand was that in my state and in my circumstances, I I was being pretty prideful. And the reason I was being pretty prideful, just kind of mopey, is because, see, pride is not just about being boastful in your spirit. Pride is, is also about you feeling sorry for yourself all the time. And, and pride is anything that would just draw attention to ourselves in a, in a negative way. Certainly there are times and, and there are seasons, my friend. I've experienced those and there will be some on the horizon. But people that are walking in humility, they, they understand that any failure they have, they, they own it, they, they respond to it. They go, where am I responsible for this? And then what do I need to let go? And they see it through the testimony of Jesus and the lens of scripture. And then humble people, when they succeed, do the same. And they go, well, that wasn't all my fault or that somebody else was, was responsible for that success that I experienced and I, and I caught up some up to it. Or, or they just understand that, that anytime they see something eternal, that it's not them, it's the Lord working and doing. It's the in Christ thing that's exhibiting and taking place in the life of the believer, the participation in the spirit. And it's God. It's look what God did. And friend, just as humbly as I can to remind us this morning as our time ends, that the ultimate way that we practice humility is one, by trusting in Christ to to acknowledge that, that we need him to repent of our sins and to believe, to call upon his name, and we will be saved. But number two, my brothers and sisters that that know Jesus and are walking with him. It's to practice this spirit of humility just as Christ did as we walk alongside each other. And and we're all sort of in the midst of the end of the pandemic. We see the hope on the horizon, but we're not there yet. And when you see the end, but you know that it's, it's not quite there yet, we can, we can tend to sort of get agitated or aggravated. Uh, like Andrew Peterson stays aggravated all the time. He has a terrible temperament. Uh, he just can't control his anger at all. But, but, but we've got to watch ourselves so we don't fall into this trap like the church in Philippi did where, where we begin to wrestle uh, with things that, that are really not of this world and we clothe ourselves, cloak ourselves with the humility of Jesus before our families, before our friends, before our coworkers because they're watching us. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. We're out of time. Father, we ask that... Uh, we just make much of you in these, these last few moments here. We pray that we would not be defined by our successes, that we wouldn't be defined by our failures, Father. But that God, in your, in your mercy and in your goodness, that, 
we would be defined by our identity that rests in your son. So God, I pray that in these moments as we, we respond to you and respond to your word, we pray that we would respond in, in your spirit. As Jeffrey said, there'd be freedom in this place to worship, to reflect your worthiness, to reflect your glory, to reflect your perfection, to put those things on display. And God, I pray you'd help us be a humble people. I pray that we would clothe ourselves in your humility that you give us at the cross. And so, Father, now I ask that you would inhabit our praises and our responses as you meet with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.